Uh, Les Miserables uh, is uh, a musical, uh, it is a movie, uh, it's also originally a novel uh, set in post-revolutionary France. Uh, hands up those who know Les Mis, eh, know it as a musical, eh, know it as a movie. If you've read the novel, wow, I understand the first hundred pages is about the sewerage system in Paris in the early uh, 19th century, so that's searing stuff. Um, Whatever your favourite version, Les Mis is insightful about grace. Uh, It shines a light on a graceless world, a world devoid of undeserved love, the kind of love we need. Uh, Javert is a policeman, a servant of justice. Uh, He is passionate to keep the letter of the law, but not he hasn't grasped the spirit. Uh, He is a hard man. He is exacting on himself and his kind of moral success, that he, that he has been a good guy, means looking down on despising those who fall short of his mark. And when Javert himself falls short, when he fails his own standard, he is offered grace. But he can't take it. And in refusing grace, he's destroyed. Uh, Valjean uh, is a criminal, an escapee of the law, and as long as the graceless Javert lives, he is always on the run. Uh, He's always hiding who he really is, his true identity, even from those who are closest to him. Um, Denied grace means he's constantly fearful, constantly insecure. That is, lame is, in whatever form you choose to take it in, shows life without grace. And graceless living is what Ephesians 2 describes, 2 verse 2. It's the way of this world. Um, It's people doing things their own way rather than God's and all it brings. It's this life of unrelenting standards and the despair that comes that you are not good enough and there is no relief. It is the judgmentalism that keeps others distant from us. It is the pride that we have of being thankful, well, at least I'm not like them. And the graceless life ultimately destroys We need grace. You need grace. The world needs grace. Wollongong needs grace. And thankfully, God's wealth is grace. That's what he's rich in. Um, The word riches is used throughout Ephesians a number of times and each time, it's just an ordinary word for for wealth, what we think about as our bank account. And what God is rich in, what his bank account is full of, is grace and mercy. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 4, uh, But God... God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Uh, Four words that bring life. There they are. But God, by grace. Uh, Grace means that your, your standing before God has nothing to do with who you are and what you've done with your past, your present, your, your performance. No, your standing with God is all about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, his past, his present, his performance. But God, by grace. Uh, As Matt told us earlier, we begin today a series in discipleship. Uh, In sermons and growth groups, we're looking at different marks of discipleship. Uh, Disciple is simply another name for Christian. Um, I know you had a chat about it a little earlier on and there's lots of great answers and you can dispute with me later. I look forward to it. Um, It is just another word for Christian. Uh, It is the word that Jesus himself used most often to describe his followers. It's used of those with first-hand experience of Jesus. It is used of those who sat at Jesus' feet, who heard his voice, who ate with him, who shared his ministry. Um, A disciple is someone who has so closely experienced Jesus, what they've done is reshaped their life on him. 
And that the word is used throughout the Gospels and it's continued to be used in Acts, but then it disappears in the rest of the New Testament, I think, underlines the intimacy of that world, that, that you know, disciple, it's about personal connection. And my definition, it's up there, uh, I try to keep it short. Um, disciples are devoted imitators of Jesus. Disciples are devoted imitators of Jesus. That is, we are devoted to Jesus. Christianity is about your heart. It flows from the heart, from the inside. It's not about the externals. It starts in here. Luke 14, verse 26. Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is using powerful language, kind of hate, really. Um, it's the language of comparison. That by comparison... Your love for Christ is so great, everything else, every other love seems like hatred. Jesus is the first, most important thing in your life. You are devoted to him, it flows from the heart. But that devotion flows into imitation, into copying. Christianity transforms your life. A disciple does not remain the same. Uh, John 13, verse 35. John 13, 35. Jesus says, By this will everyone know you are my disciples if you love one another. Remember who's speaking? God is love. He's not just has love, he is love. Uh, and his, his followers are spotted by imitating just that, copying that. Christian life is copying the attitudes and actions of Christ in everything. We are imitators of Christ. Disciples are devoted imitators of Jesus. And if you were with us, uh, Matt mentioned before our uh, celebration service, no, actually it was Sandy who mentioned it. Yeah, before we sang Behold Our God. Our celebration service last week, we looked at Matthew 28. You will remember Jesus' final words before he ascended. It was all about discipleship. And he commanded us who are disciples to make disciples. Discipleship matters to each one of us because it matters to Jesus. It is his command. It matters to each of us because Jesus expects that pattern of devoted imitation is going to be learnt from one believer passing it on to another. You might remember Jesus' model wasn't just preaching salvation, getting people over the line, great, they're in heaven, leave them as they are, off I go. No, no, no. By example and teaching, he invested time and energy to grow believers in maturity. He invested particularly in 12 over three years and three within that 12. And Jesus' plan for kingdom growth was through relationships as those who first lived close enough to Jesus to copy his loves and lives, who ate with him, would in turn bring others close enough to them that they would learn it and they would bring others and go on and on and on. The remarkable thing is, uh, if we could sit down, if we had access to the kind of information and people, we could trace a line back from us right back to the apostles themselves, the people who sat at Jesus' feet because somebody told somebody to somebody who told you. It all came through people. Disciples are devoted imitators of Jesus and our church's vision is to see more disciples of Jesus shining as lights in our city. And so looking at the marks of discipleship this term is going to help that vision be our experience and that's what we want. But the first mark that underlines all the marks of Christianity, all the signs of discipleship is this, saved by grace. Um, and so today's catchphrase, but God by grace. See, the thing that underlines all discipleship is it's all about what God has done and not about what you have done. 
So God has poured his undeserved love and favour into our graceless world and, and that has created disciples. Every disciple lives, therefore, by that motto, but God by grace. Not about me, but God by grace. And we're going to see it in three particular ways. The first, but God by grace humbles. See, God raised the spiritually dead. It's Jesus who creates his disciples. Ephesians 2, we're there. Ephesians 2 pictures the spiritual extremities of humanity. And it begins with this dark description of all of us left to ourselves. So 2 verse 1, left to ourselves, we are dead in transgression and sin. Uh, Transgression is active disobedience. Uh, It's willfully choosing to cross the line. You know what you're not supposed to do, but you're stepping over anyway. That's transgression. Sin, sin, the word there for sin, is falling short of a standard. You're aspiring, you're going in the right direction, you just can't meet it. It's falling short of the mark. And and so the original says, transgression and sin characterise our walk. It uses a really evocative word in the original. It doesn't say live, it says walk, the way you used to walk. Uh, That is, it's a beautiful picture because it's the recognisable pattern of our life is our walk. It's the path and the direction that we choose to take and it is not God's path to everlasting glory. Left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead by both the wrong that we do and the good we fail to do. We are spiritually dead because our imperfection, our direction, puts us out of fellowship with God who is the source of life. Remember John 17 verse 3? Eternal life is knowing God. Not knowing about him, but knowing him. Sharing the heart and passion of God without barrier. And left to ourselves, not only is it us, but there are forces drawing us further from God. Verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the devil, exerts power and authority over us. Satan is not a comical figure in red with little horns and a pitchfork. No, no, no. He's a real spiritual power that deceives us by casting doubt on God's goodness and God's wisdom. And in verse 2, he is at work even now keeping people in death. Not that everything can be blamed on him. No, verse 3, we are driven by the flesh. We are driven by desires that are curved in on ourselves. So what the flesh does is twist things that are good. You know, the the flesh will will twist a a good desire for relationship into loving those who just love me. Selfishness. You know, what, what it does is it twists the good desire for rest into laziness or the good desire for work, into workaholism. It twists what is good. Left to ourselves, we are dead in a graceless world, even as we live. Now, this is not everything the Bible has to say about people. Um, you know, we who are spiritually dead are also God's image. Um, this, this, is not, this passage is not saying that every unbeliever is as wicked as they possibly could be. What is being said is that left to ourselves, every single person is walking a path that only leads to the wrath of God. And in verse 3, his wrath is not a fiery temper tantrum, no, but it is God's personal, righteous hostility to everything that is evil. God is so committed to good, so committed to love, that he refuses to coexist with evil and he is resolved to put an end to it, to condemn it. And left to ourselves, like the physically dead, we are in a spiritual state we cannot fix. That is the power, the beauty of that metaphor, isn't it? Um, I don't know a lot about medicine, But I do know the dead are dead and they can do nothing about it. And therefore it is humbling. But God, by grace, acts. 2 verse 4, that's the key. But, but, 
You know, spiritual death doesn't have the final word. It doesn't stop at verse 3. But, verse 5, God makes his people alive. And why does he do it? Well, the answer is there. We've sang of it, we've read of it, we've heard of it. Let me highlight it. Verse 4, in God's great love and in his rich in mercy. Verse 5, we're told again it's his grace. Verse 7, it's the riches of his grace might be displayed. Verse 8, his saving grace, his gift. That is, underlying all this, God acts because of something that is inside him, not in you. And that's a remarkable thought, isn't it? That it's got nothing to do with you, in fact. He loves because he loves. He doesn't love because you're lovely. And so the first mark of a disciple is humility. Humility. Christ's disciples can face the truth. Uh, By God's grace, we can face the depth of our own spiritual failure because we know that God has seen us at our very worst and he has still acted to save. And therefore, his mercy is greater than your sin, no matter how big your sin is. Uh, Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, I'm going to get a picture in a moment, is the story of, beautiful, a man obsessed with pleasure and appearances. It's literary night tonight. Um, As Dorian Gray walks unrestrained in sin, from sexual immorality to drug use to murder, and nothing affects him. His appearance is ageless and unchanged, but this portrait that he hides at home changes and ages and distorts as he chases his cravings. And this portrait in his attic that is hidden from everyone else reveals Gray's true self in all of its ugliness. And as much as this passage is not the only truth that we can say about our friends and our family and even ourselves, um, if a picture was taken that went beyond appearances, that took into account every time that we had gratified our sinful nature's craving, it would not be an attractive sight. It would not be the, the picture we would hang for public display. And yet it is what God sees. He sees behind the curtain to the darkest secrets, but God, by grace, does not turn away. He will not keep out of the picture. God sees you as you are and from within himself loves you. He sent his beloved son to be sin for you. That is, God acts from who he is, not who you are, for our good. And we, as Christ's disciples, can face the truth. We can admit the depth of our failure and it doesn't crush us and it doesn't destroy us. We can actually be honest because we're so secure in him. In fact, you can start changing that walk of transgression and sin because you don't have to pretend it's not there. You know, you can't turn away from things if you're always acting as though it doesn't exist. The first step in turning from idols of the heart is admitting the idol is there. And even more, grace, grace that changes us flows through to others. It makes here the church the place of grace, not morality. So religion is the community created without grace. Religion is the community created when you have to put in some effort to better yourself and save yourself. Religion is the community that is judgmental and harsh, where where people are always looking around and wondering, why don't those other people try just a little harder to be a little bit better? But grace destroys that. Grace destroys kind of self-smug superiority and damaging moralism. See, by grace, we know that everyone is, by nature, in the same position. There are no degrees of the dead This is really giving you more of my medical knowledge here, okay? Um, There are different ways to die, but there are no grades of dead. Spiritually, there is variety in sin. You know, there are some who are obvious in their gossip and their rage and their greed. And there are others who are subtle 
in masking pride with shyness or hiding greed with a good work ethic. Hey, there's variety in sin, but it's all death. And grace means that every person is in the same boat. Grace creates disciples of deep humility because we can honestly deal with who we really are. We can face that and it doesn't crush us and we can gently deal with the failure of others and welcome them. See, but God by grace humbles. Jesus creates these disciples who admit that we are both more sinful than we ever imagined but more loved than we ever dreamed. Secondly with that, but God by grace secures God has located us with Christ. What happens to Jesus happens to his disciples. So the section we read is actually part of a longer thought. It began with a prayer of Paul's, page before, 1 verse 15. Paul started praying for them in 1 verse 15 and his prayer is that they would know God better. And in 1 verse 19, he prays that they would understand all it means that the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies is at work in every single believer. And in 1 verse 21, Jesus has been powerfully lifted from death, not just to be back amongst us, but lifted to something more than ordinary life. He has been exalted and given the name above every name. And in 2 verse 6, here's the remarkable bit, 2 verse 6 over the page, the exact same power has done the exact same thing for his disciples, for you. God has relocated us. We were, remember, in sin and transgression. We were in the realm of the flesh. We were in the devil's grip. And now, by grace, we are in Christ. So if we're in Christ, whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. Across the ages, Christ's disciples have um, recited these words about Jesus in the Apostles' Creed. We've said them here. Um, The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It summarises three important truths about Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension and his session. So Jesus rose, he's, he's come back from the dead, he is alive, he broke sin and death, his resurrection. Jesus ascended, he's gone up into full acceptance and fellowship with the Father. And Jesus is currently in session. That is, he is there, enthroned, ruling over creation at the Father's side. We sang it in Behold Our God. Jesus' resurrection, ascension and session. And the remarkable insight of Ephesians 2 is that those creedal words could be said about every disciple. That is where we are. Verse 5, in Christ you were raised from the dead on the third day. Verse 6, in Christ you have ascended to find acceptance in the Father's presence and reign with him. God has located us with Jesus. Whatever happens to him happens to his disciples. And so the second mark of a disciple is confidence. Confidence. We don't doubt our standing before God. You may know this feeling. You may know that kind of up and down feeling as a Christian. It's tempting to feel that way. You know, it's Sunday, you know, you've had a great day today, you know, you, you woke early, you had a quiet time as the birds sang, didn't you? Yeah. Um, but then, you know, the, the days rolled on, and, you know, you've had some great times with other people. Now you're here at church and, you, you know, you've been praising God and we're going to hang out later and you're going to have encouraging conversation. You're feeling great as a Christian. Tomorrow comes, uh, you know, you slept in, you missed the quiet time, you uh, lost your cool with your family, with your flatmates, you your co-worker, you're feeling unworthy to have a share in Jesus. But God by grace secures you. Grace says it is not about your past performance or even your present performance. It's not about your ups and downs. Your location in the presence of God is based on Jesus, his past, his present, where he is, you are in him. 
Uh, John Bunyan, uh, famous for writing Pilgrim's Progress, but he understood this security. Um, in another of his works, Grace Abounding, he writes, have a look, one day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. You're, he's speaking to his own soul. My righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. And I said, there, there's my righteousness. So, wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where's your righteousness? For it's always right before him. So he's saying, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, because my righteousness isn't here, it's there, it's in Jesus. So he goes on, he goes, I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that makes my righteousness better. I can't improve my righteousness my good day. And he goes on, he goes, yet not my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. Even my worst days, it doesn't affect it. No, I, I didn't, for my righteousness is Christ. And now my chains fell off indeed, my temptations fled away, he said, and I live sweetly at peace with God. Sweetly at peace with God, that is confidence. He goes on and finishes, now, now I could look for myself to him and could reckon that all my character was like the coins a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Oh, that I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home. See what he's talking about? Going, why would I count the money in my pocket when I've got a bank account full of stuff? That's where my real treasure is. And he says, there is my treasure in Christ my Lord. Now Christ was all my righteousness, sanctification and redemption. See what Bunyan's discovering? His soul felt grace, security, confidence, because trusting in Christ, he realised God wasn't looking at his ups and downs. No, God was only looking at Jesus but God by grace secures and devoted imitators of Jesus live confident whatever happened to Jesus happens to us. And thirdly, lastly, but God by grace directs. God has prepared good for us to do. Christ has a plan for his disciples' life. See, making disciples is more than telling them the good news of Jesus, more than evangelism. It's more than just saving people from wrath and leaving them as they are. No, grace reshapes our lives. Uh, in verse 10, Have a look at verse 10. Those in Christ are God's workmanship. That word workmanship is creation language. It's done to us. Um, In fact, it's a special word. Some translate it as God's work of art, God's masterpiece. Christians are God's work of art and masterpiece. And because it is creation language, there is no room for you and I to boast. We can't go, wow, aren't we great? What What a work of art we are. No, if you go up to Sydney, go to the harbour, you admire the opera house, You don't marvel at, wow, what a clever building. Didn't it do a great job making itself? No, no, no. You praise the architects, you know, the builders of the day. And God has recreated us. We are his work of art, all praise to him. And what's he made us for? To be like Jesus. C.S. Lewis talked about every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming Christian is simply nothing else. We might become a little Christ. And he has already laid out a plan for your life. If you've been wondering, what's the plan for my life? It's here. It's that you might do good works. The original says we are God's workmanship to walk in good works. That is, uh, the path of our life, the direction we head, the characteristic that others could spot about Christ's disciple is that we walk in good works. And so that third mark of a disciple is active goodness. Disciples live grace from grace. Uh, In the Bible... The Bible says there's good works and there's good works. Okay? The, the contrast between verse 1 here and verse 10 is not saying every unbeliever is just a terrible person and every believer is just simply lovely in sweetness and light. Um, you and I know some really wonderful non-Christians 
and we know some pretty unpleasant Christians. Okay? The contrast is behind the motivation, the heart behind the good works. So there are good works done to compel God that he might be in our debt, to make ourselves acceptable to him. Isaiah 64.6 calls those good works filthy rags, literally menstrual cloths. And there are other good works that come in response to God paying for our debt, flowing from God, making us acceptable. That's the difference. And grace impacts your heart, your motive, your drive. Grace shifts us from doing, goods that, doing good works that we might get acceptance to doing good works because we have been fully accepted. Grace changes why we want to do good. Uh, the Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers explained it. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection, an old love, you know, you're clinging on to something in there, is by the expulsive power of a new one. You've got to get a bigger love in there and it will explode it out. So the heart is changed by a bigger motivation and there is no bigger love than God's grace. And once it comes inside, it transforms us from the inside. And, and so that old natural motivation for doing good is that oh, I do good that I might be loved. I, I do good so that people will think well of me. I do good because oh, I might get something back. But grace gets in our hearts and explodes it. It expels it. We walk in goodness because we have received. God has loved us. He has exalted us. We, are, we have a share in Jesus' reputation forever. And God becomes our new first affection. And having received, we can freely give. Uh, early in Lamy's, uh, grace breaks into a graceless world. Uh, Jean Valjean, uh, he escapes prison. He finds shelter with a bishop and during the night, uh, Valjean, hardened criminal that he is, takes the opportunity, he'll steal the silverware and he'll keep running. Um, he's rounded up, he's brought back to the bishop and the police are looking for the bishop to confirm the theft and uh, lock Valjean up for good. Instead... And if you know the story, you know what happens. The bishop explains, no, 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 there's been a mistake. No, no, the silverware was a gift. In fact, do you know what, my friend, you have forgotten to take the candlesticks to? You know, it says it up there. My friend, before you go, here are the candlesticks. Take them. An act of grace to the undeserving. And this act of grace explodes in Valjean's heart. He is transformed that he now wants to live a life of goodness and giving because he has received it's a little picture of what God, by grace, does in our hearts, exploding our hearts with a new love. See, we need grace. And thankfully what God does is pour it out on us, his disciples. But by God, by grace, our new motto. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father, we pray that we would grasp a little more just how wonderful, amazing your grace is. We've sung of it. We've heard of it but we pray your spirit would make it real in our lives, in our hearts and our minds, for our good and for the good of those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, by grace we pray, and Ethan's going to keep leading us in prayer.